And if you turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 12, Romans chapter 12, we're coming to the next part in our series. I think this is the fifth part in our series on Love Your Church. We've been thinking about what the church is and why we should love it. And we're seeing now not just the why we should love it, but how we should love it. And we thought uh, several weeks back in Johnny's sermon on caring uh, for one another, bearing one another's burdens. And we come this morning to serving Christ's church. And we've seen in our opening sermons what the church is and how we are to belong to it. And maybe, maybe this morning you're here and you, you don't yet belong to Christ. So that's your first priority, that you come to the Lord Jesus Christ and say, I want you to be my saviour. It may be this morning that you belong to Christ, and although you regularly attend this church, you haven't, as you've seen some other people doing, come into membership of the congregation, taken those membership vows, and that's something that As elders, we want you to to seriously consider and to think about. And if there are questions that you've got, come and have those questions uh, answered. We come this morning then to serving Christ's church. And that very word serving sounds menial. It sounds second class. We were at one of those great... um, uh, nobility estates uh, on holidays and wandering around Mount Stuart where they, there were the lords and the ladies and the servants' quarters. You know which quarters you would rather be in. You would rather uh, be with the lords and the ladies. Nobody wants to be a servant. And even to think of a sermon on being a servant might make us feel guilty. But it's our great privilege And we're using this sermon series as a time to reset ourselves, to give ourselves uh, a moment to recalibrate our thinking on the church. And if the church is not an event and not a physical location, but it's God's people gathered together under God's rule, then the church is not a takeaway It is not a restaurant, it's a family. And serving each other and caring for each other are part of what a family does. And it's part of what the church is to be like. And so we come this morning to think of serving the church. And we're looking at Romans 12, and especially verses 3 to 8. And there's three things for us to see. The first two really are uh, by way of introduction but they're important. And then we'll come to the third point that that we'll expand a little bit on. The first thing to see this morning is we serve because Christ served us. We serve because Christ served us. Now, where do we see that in our passage? It's in the very first word. Therefore. Therefore. And we're thinking, when you see the word therefore, you should always ask yourself, what's it there for? Why is it there? It's there 
because it's telling us in the light of what you've just been told, this is the conclusion. And what is it we've just been told? We've just been told in the first 11 chapters some incredible truths about what God has done for us. And we have to start with the therefore. Because if we don't start with the therefore, then we'll just come to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice and use the gifts that God has given you. And that, if we just start there, it will sound very much like we earn our way into God's favor by offering ourselves sacrificially to him and living purposefully for him with all that he's given us, and then God will accept us. That's not the case. Therefore, points us back to what we've been told. And in chapters 1 to 3, we're told that there is no one righteous, not even one. Father Sheehy has got himself into trouble for highlighting particular categories of people whom God, particular actions by people that God says no to. And he's got himself into trouble. But actually, he didn't go broadly enough. Paul, Paul is an equal opportunities offender. And in chapters 1 to 3, he says you can be really bad. You can reject God in ways that, are, that, that society will say no to. You can be really bad and not be righteous. You can be really good and not be righteous. You can be really religious and not be righteous. There is no one righteous. Everybody is going to hell. Paul says... There is no one righteous, not even one. Uh, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So there's astonishingly bad news in the first three chapters. But then, in chapter 3, uh, in the middle of it, Paul says, But now, a righteousness apart from the law, apart from obedience, has been made known. And it's through Jesus Christ. And it's through trusting in his work. And in chapters 4 to 8, Paul sets out the wonder of, of what comes to those who, instead of banking on their own performance, put all their hope and all their trust on Jesus' performance. And he comes to chapter 8, and he starts off in chapter 8 with a therefore. He says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because of what Jesus has done, there is no condemnation. And then in chapters 9 to 11, he unpacks the wonder of the spread of God's salvation. This news of what Jesus accomplished and how it spreads and how the Jewish people had rejected it and it was now spreading to the Gentiles, but how it would come full circle to include the Jewish people again. It would encircle the globe and Paul bursts out with this great chorus of praise at the end of chapter 11 to the wisdom and the power and the glory of this God who's made this salvation known to people of every nation, tribe and language. And then he says, therefore, therefore, since you were the people who were doomed, therefore, since God has brought a Savior into the world who has paid and he has been condemned in your place, therefore, what kind of people ought you to be? And that's why he says, Therefore, I urge you in view of God's mercy. A Christian is someone who has received mercy. A Christian is someone for whom Christ 
came into the world and as Philippians 2 puts it, he humbled himself. He took the form of a servant and he was obedient to death, even death on a cross. In Romans 3, Paul uses this word for sacrifice. He uses it, he just used the word sacrifice earlier. He says, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And when we ask him to bear our sins and to bear the wrath that we deserved, we find that we have received mercy because he took the blame. He served us. He became the substitute. He became the sacrifice. And then the person who's received this mercy, what are they to be like? Therefore, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. He was the dying sacrifice. He was the king who became the servant. And what are we to be? The sinners who have been saved. What are we to be like? We are to be living sacrifices. We are to be servants. And when you think about it, he who was the only begotten of the Father, he who was, as one of the, the ancient creeds puts it, very God of very God, he was, he was truly God, and by whom all things were made. He made himself nothing. He took the form of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and was obedient to death, even death on a cross. And that should stir our hearts to say, what, if he has done that for me, what can I do for him? Therefore, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. How do you think the Father reacts when he sees his people? As far as we can in our humanity, mimic his beloved Son, the one who gave himself to be a dying sacrifice. And the Father looks and he sees us offering ourselves to be living sacrifices. It's pleasing to him. He delights in it. And uh, in, uh, in, in verse 1, the NIV has here, this is your spiritual act of worship. It could also be translated, this is your reasonable worship, or this is your reasonable service. It's the word that's used here for worship. It doesn't refer to the vertical direction towards God, but it's, it's our, 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 our horizontal living for God in the world. If this is what Christ has done for us, then we are to use our bodies to, to live for him in the world. And this is, that makes perfect sense. It's entirely rational, Paul's saying. It follows. Christ did this for us. We are to live this way for him. Oh, think of, of what our Savior did. Is it any wonder that Paul says, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought? Oh, what a... Oh, where would we be if our Savior, who had every right to think of himself highly, said, I'm not doing that. I'm not doing that. You want me to go and do that for them? 
Where would we be if he said, it's not my job? Where would we be if he said, I don't feel like that today? You know, sometimes we might say, I don't feel like it today. Sometimes we might say, I, I've been doing this for years and nobody notices. Imagine Christ living for 33 years. Living a life of perfect obedience because we needed a perfect record. And we couldn't live a perfect life and we needed somebody to live it for us. And for 33 years, that's what he did. And I'm sure he didn't get any thanks during it. Nobody came up to him and shook his hand and said, thank you for all you're doing because I can see you're doing it for me. He came and served. And we are the people who have heaven because of his servanthood. So we serve because Christ served us. Secondly, we serve because Christ connected us. There's really no such thing as an individual Christian. Yes, we're all individuals, but we've been connected to our Savior and we've been connected to each other. That's why God has designed the church the way it is that we belong together, closely interconnected. And when we look at what Paul says here, he uses one of his favorite pieces of imagery. He describes the church as a body. A human body. He uses it in Romans. He uses it in 1 Corinthians. He uses it in Ephesians. He uses it in Colossians. And it's easy to see why Paul picks this imagery. The human body is astonishing. It's a wonderful piece of machinery. Made up of so many different parts. And, and each part has a role to play. Even think of the simplest action. You're going to lift something. Your fingers. They can't lift anything on their own. They need the ligaments and they need the, the tendons and they need the muscles. They need the bone structure so that they need the brain to send the signal. They need the nerves connecting to the hand. They need the brain processing the signal so that you're closed with just the right amount of pressure. And you don't lift something fragile with too much pressure. And you don't lift something valuable with too little pressure so that it drops. Astonishing. And we need the, the, the blood vessels going and taking the blood that's been oxygenated by the heart and the lungs, taking it to the muscles so that the muscles contract with the signals from the brain. Astonishing. But the finger can't do it on its own. Each part belongs together. And look at verse 5. Do you see what it says? So in Christ we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to the others. How significant. Each member belongs to the others. You are not your own. You belong to the people beside you, behind you, in front of you in this church. And we serve because Jesus Christ has connected us into his body. And each person has a part to play and it's a real privilege and we felt that privilege as you have been prayed for in trials by people here and as you have been helped and supported in difficulties by your fellow Christians you felt the blessing of it and it brings responsibility just as a, a part of the body can't take uh, time off and say I'm not showing up for work today uh, neither can Christians we, we, we are to serve the church 
and we'll come to the practicalities of that in a moment. We need to need to see ourselves as a part of the body. And the church is not a place where a few people have what it takes and the rest are spare parts. That is not it. Although you may see Johnny and I at the front more frequently, we are not more essential than you. That's not it. Uh, you know the story in World War II of the, the Jeep and how it got its name. It got its name because Jeep stands for just enough essential parts. And that's what Christ has done in the church. He has given this church here, New Life Fellowship Letter Kenny, the essential parts. And it's not that they're superfluous parts. In addition to the essentials, no, he has put you here, if you've put your trust in Christ, to serve. And he has shaped you with your abilities, your temperament, your personality. He has shaped you with your past, with all of that, to be used by him in his church. He has connected you in. And we need to grasp that, that Christ is worthy of our service and Christ has placed us for our service here. Just as it is in the body that the parts of the body uh, serve each other, so it is in the church. Tony Merida, uh, who wrote uh, the book Love Your Church, says, As a Christian, you shouldn't think of the church as the place where I listen to sermons, but as the place or even the people amongst whom I serve. He goes on to say, God gave us gifts because he loves the church and we are to use our gifts for the good of our brothers and sisters. So that leads us to our third point. We serve because Christ served us. We serve because Christ connected us. We serve because Christ gifted us. Now we think of gifts as some special, unique talent something outstanding we say to somebody they are gifted in some area and I was inclined to change the word here to temperament or abilities or skills but I can't do that because it detracts from the word the Bible uses and although temperaments and gifts or temperaments and skills and abilities are, are part of it those are given by the king, the head of the church. They are gifts. And we may look at some of these and think, well, you know, that's, that didn't realize that was a gift. That's something that the Lord Jesus has given to you, to use in his church. It's his gift to you and to us. And so we're going to stick with the word gifts, but don't let it be limited in your thinking to, you know, some sort of gloriously spectacular ability to do something because that's not what we see here and for too long in the church the focus for about the last hundred years has has been on a debate between certain miraculous gifts are they still present speaking in tongues prophesying working miracles and two dangers exist. One danger is that we fixate on those. And, and some churches would even teach that you're not a real Christian if you haven't spoken in tongues. And that's something that we might end up discussing on, on Wednesday night. Um, but there's an opposite danger. 
And the opposite danger is to ignore God's gifts altogether and think, oh, well, there's a lot of debate about that. I'm just going to ignore it and play it safe. That would be wrong too. And while this isn't the place to start into a, a long explanation about those more miraculous gifts, it's enough, I think, to say that I do not believe that they are part of the regular experience of the believer. I believe that they were a unique feature of that transition from the Old Testament to the New Testament, where God is underlining the truth of the message. And he is completing the message while Scripture itself was incomplete. And so you'd prophets coming and bringing a particular application of God's Word to the people in that day who only had the first 39 books of the Bible. But I believe that as such they are not generally in operation today. God can work miracles, but I don't believe that we should be looking for the person gifted as a miracle worker. God can reveal something of the future. But that does not mean that we should look for people who are gifted foretellers of the future. God, there is a difference between what God has said He will do and what God may choose to do. And so as we look at the list that Paul gives us here in Romans 12, we see that there are some that appear special and standout gifts, prophesying, teaching, leading, And some appear very ordinary, serving, encouraging, giving, and showing mercy. And these aren't all the gifts that there are mentioned in the Bible. There are other lists in 1 Corinthians 12 and Ephesians 4 and 1 Peter 4. But we're going to confine ourselves to this and then to look at the spread of them. But before we get to the two categories that there are here, I want us to note what we've mentioned already, that that he has given gifts to everyone. Paul doesn't say some of you. Paul doesn't say I. Paul says we and us. We have received different gifts. Do you see? Verse 6. We have received different gifts according to the grace given us. In 1 Peter 4.10, Peter writes, Each of you, should use whatever gift you have received to serve others. Each of you. So you may think you don't have gifts. We'll look at the list in a moment, but I want you to realize for now, you have abilities that God has given you, experience that God has given you, wisdom that God has given you, a past that God has given you to use for the benefit of His church and the extension of His church. Just think if we were all the same. Paul uses the imagery in, in, of the body in 1 Corinthians 12, or, or 1 Corinthians, yeah, I think it is 12, where he talks about if the whole body were a mouth, where would the sense of hearing be? If, if, if everybody in here was a preacher, think of the chaos it would be on a Sabbath morning. You'd come in, the heat wouldn't be on. The chairs wouldn't be set out. You, you, you know, there'd be no tea or coffee afterwards. You know, there'd be nobody praying. There'd be nobody able to, 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 to present the singing. There'd be nobody bearing one another's burden. There'd be no use. But God has shaped us. and He's given us a whole range. And let's, let's take two categories that Paul has for us here. 
their gifts. They divide into two categories, gifts of speaking and gifts of serving. One is not superior to the other. They are both vital, just like the right hand is not superior to the left hand. You go to carry something, and we're to carry one another's burdens, and we're to reach out and welcome you. You need two hands. God has given us these two sets of gifts. He says, and I think what we have in verse uh, uh, verse 6, if a man's gift is prophesying, let him use it in proportion to his faith. If it is serving, let him serve. I think he's setting out the two broad categories because Peter does the same in 1 Peter 4.10. Each of you should use whatever gift you've received to serve others. We've read that. Then he says, if anyone speaks, they should do so with one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides. There's the two categories. Gifts of speaking, gifts of serving. That doesn't mean, as, as Tony Merida reminds us, this does not mean that those who speak never serve and that those who serve never speak. That's not the way it is. But we need to ask ourselves, or it's helpful to ask, which way has God shaped me? What category are my gifts in that I might use them? And so let's think first of all then of um, gifts of speaking. It has here different words. Prophecy, one who teaches, one who exhorts. And rather than trying to give narrow definitions of them, let's think of them as different applications and opportunities to exercise speaking gifts. This word prophesying, before the, the scriptures were complete, there were men who received direct word from God. And sometimes that direct word concerned the future. But most often, it took God's word and it applied it to a particular circumstance of the people at that time. That was true in the Old Testament and true in the New Testament. So they weren't so much foretelling the future as telling what to do in the present. They were preachers. And now that God has given us his word fully so that the man or the woman of God may be thoroughly equipped, we do not need this ongoing revelation, but we do need ongoing application. And so a prophet today is, bears most resemblance to what we might call preaching. We don't have the office of prophet today, but it bears close resemblance to the office of the preacher, one who is called to proclaim God's word and apply it to today's issues. As a man gifts in this area, he should consider whether God is calling him to serve in the ministry or in the office of an elder because an elder is to be able to teach and with authority. Prophecy. Teaching. Here's a, a wider remit. Not everyone is able to teach. Not everyone can take a thing in to hold other truths in balance, and to put it across clearly. Teaching is to be marked with clarity and wisdom and knowledge. It's got to be accurate, but it's got to be clear. Not everyone can manage that. Some of you have a gift for clarity. Some of you have a gift for communicating in a very visual way. 
And, and so many of us are visual learners. In fact, when you look at Scripture, all of the writers of Scripture are masters of imagery. And some of you are great with imagery. And that's great for communicating to all sorts of people. Some have a gift of communicating. Some are good at getting a handle on a passage of the Bible and illustrating its truth and explaining it simply. If that's you, look for ways to use that. Maybe in teaching Sunday school. There are opportunities for, you, for some of you are testing out. Is this where your gifts lie in this area? It may be at church camps. It may be in youth groups. It may be in Bible studies. It may be in evangelistic Bible studies where you're, you're setting out the truths of the gospel with people and you're, you're saying, this is what it's like. And you've got image after image that you're using to communicate with them. And you're taking them to the truth of Scripture and setting it before them. If that's you, think how God may use it and come and speak uh, to the elders or look for opportunities to use it in sharing the gospel with uh, and sharing the Bible with people outside of the church too. Exhortation, Paul mentions here as well. Uh, or encouraging. The word that's used means to come alongside somebody. To put an arm around their shoulder. To give them strength to keep going. Uh, or to, to give them direction in a path that's hard. To come alongside and to encourage. And some people are, we're all to do it. We're all to do it, but some are particularly good at it. Remember, Judith Tate's mum, Margaret McCune, at her funeral, Warren said, you know, that the, the number of times he had preached a sermon that he thought was rubbish, and, and Margaret would say something wonderfully rich that she had gained from it. I remember that too. I remember preaching a sermon one uh, Lord's Day evening that I thought was the worst I'd ever preached. Uh, I thought it was terrible. Uh, and Margaret hadn't been out at church, but she had got a tape of the service, and she had listened to it, and a message came back to me uh, about how much she had benefited from it. It probably was a clangor of a sermon, but she was so hungry to hear of God, uh, and so keen to see her Savior that she got good out of it, and she wanted to encourage the preacher. She had a gift of encouragement. Maybe you are like that and you see things in other people that you want to, to spur them on and you, you're quick to send a message. Keep doing that. Be that sort of person. Or you see somebody struggling and you know, I've been there before. And you, and you think, well, I wonder should I go on and give them a word of encouragement either from Scripture or from my own experience? Go. Go and do that. It may be that it's not just a speaking gift, but it's a writing gift. The sort of person who's quick to put pen to paper to send a card, to give you a verse of Scripture. You've got the time and you've got the thought. It's the gift of encouraging. Use it, please, to spur on your brothers and sisters. The gifts of, of speaking. Paul also mentions, and we'll be finishing with this, the gifts of serving. And he, it's so broad. He talks about service, and then he talks about the one who contributes, and the one who leads, and the one who does acts of mercy. And these seem every day. But breathing is every day. 
And eating is every day. And we need the everyday things. They're vital. And so these are vital. Serving and giving and encouraging and acts of mercy are all commanded for every Christian. We all need to be doing them. But here's an acknowledgement that some are better or some have more opportunity or some have resources or some have, have time to do what others do not have time or resources to do. And we serve. That word takes in so much. It's a heart that's ready to serve, to ask, what can I do? It takes in, think of church life, the putting on of the heat, the opening up, the setting out of chairs, that's serving. The leading of the Psalms, that's serving. The making of the tea, the washing up, that's serving the body of Christ. You don't need to be gifted to wash dishes, by the way. Just go and do it. That's why right, it's commanded for all of us to serve. But there are things that people have time and opportunity to do to, that others may not have. To go and visit the sick. Uh, to make a meal for someone in an emergency or a stressful time. Or to put sermons up on the internet. It's all service. To have the visiting preacher for lunch, that's service. To show hospitality to members of the church, that's service. Uh, there's lots of ways to serve. I think of one lady in my home congregation who's a professional cleaner. And she would have said, I'm just a cleaner, a school cleaner. Not at all. That magnificent servant of God kept the church looking pristine. So when people came in, they weren't distracted by stuff lying here and dirt there and biscuit ground into the carpet there. She kept the church clean. That was her service, along with others in the church who worked with her. Valuable service, not just a cleaner. What an awful phrase. Or an older person who feels they're unable to do much, but they've time to pray and a burden to pray. Think of a, an old Christian who prayed every week for every member of her church. An adult who takes time to be interested in young people, to talk to them, who finds that they, they, they find it easy to do that. That's a gift. It's serving. If you've time to be practically helping somebody else in the church who, who has work that they can't do, that you could do, that's serving the body. This is an opportunity to think creatively. What Paul says here is not a limitation. It's not just that there's three things that he says, oh, by the way, you could give or you could lead or you could do acts of mercy. Those are just for instances that may be giving. Some have more resources that they can give. Some have more time that they can give. Some have wisdom and experience that they can give. The word giving here doesn't just relate to money, but all sorts. Can you take a young Christian under your wing, or a young mum, or a young man, and put time and effort into them so they grow? Others have ability to lead, but may sit back for many reasons, because leading is costly and tiring. But if God has gifted you for leadership, don't sit back. It says here, let him govern diligently or let him do it with zeal, it could be translated. Take the initiative. Come and speak to the elders by whom all things are to be governed and say, I, I've been wondering about this. But don't sit back. Acts of mercy. 
What a wonderfully broad phrase. Showing mercy. Some are really good at spotting what needs done. Putting themselves in others' shoes or skin or heart or head. They're empathetic and sympathetic. That's a wonderful asset to the church. You may think, was that not normal? It's not, no. Not all of us are good at that. We're too busy blustering on uh, and taking on too many things and and, uh, not slowing down enough. It's a gift to spot what needs done, to spot the person who's hurting. And outside the church, what a wonderful thing to, to show kindness and mercy as well as inside the church. So many ways. What a wide-ranging thing our gifts are. They are not ordinary. They are not unremarkable. They might seem it. But that's the point, isn't it? That's how God likes to work. So often He takes what's ordinary to us and doesn't seem spectacular. And He uses it. So, What are the ways that God has made you that you might be able to serve here in the church? Maybe gifts of speaking. Maybe gifts of service. But God has given you strengths and abilities. So let us seek to use them as we seek to serve our King who gave Himself for us. The King of the universe became a living, serving sacrifice for you. Let us not think of ourselves more highly than we ought. But therefore, in view of God's great mercy, let us offer ourselves as living sacrifices, serving our King's church. Love your church by serving your church. Amen. Let us stand, if we're able, as we come to God in prayer. Father in heaven, I thank you for the people here in front of me. I thank you for assembling them like the parts of a jeep. All essential parts. Thank you. Thank you for the temperaments. Thank you for the abilities. Thank you for the experience. Thank you for the heart and heads that you've given to them and the hands that you've given to them. Thank you for the calendars that you've given to them, the time that they have or don't have, the the gifts that they have, the, the experiences that they can use, the connections they've got. And Lord, we pray that you would help each of us to think, how can we love the church and love the people of this church by serving the church? Whether it's serving on, on Sunday ways, or whether it's serving on weekday ways, uh, whether it's serving by speaking, whether it's serving by serving. Lord, we pray that you would help us to look at how you've shaped us so that we can serve our King who gave himself for us. Father, we ask it for Jesus' sake and Jesus' glory. Amen.